The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's from the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing? Tom? Good, Father. Thanks for being here tonight. Well, thank you for having me. And, <laughs> no problem. Uh, I'd like to take an opportunity also to thank those who prayed for my recovery. Mm -hmm. Still recovering from the uh, rotator cuff surgery. But uh, managed to have an arm visible here, even if it's in a sling. And I appreciate your prayers, so thank you. Also, please keep in your prayers some dear souls who are very much in need. One of them, your grandmother, right? Yes, right. And uh, also, all of our supporters of what Catholics believe over the years, uh, especially those deceased who have passed away, and now hopefully receiving a great reward from our Lord, from our Lord for their fidelity. Please keep them in your prayers. Definitely. Father, I thought we could start tonight with this uh, Vigano issue that's been, been going on for some time. It seems it's been a while since we've uh, heard any, any news in this realm. So do you have any, any kind of insight for us, Father, any kind of update on the Vigano matter? Well, you know, Tom, somebody just asked me earlier this evening if there was any news, any development on this. And actually, I think the big development is that there seem to be no developments. <laughs> right. This is a strange thing. It's like the name Vigano is slowly fading over the horizon. You know, the secular press doesn't really mention him much of it all anymore. Even the so-called religious press, you know, doesn't really reference him very much anymore. And so it seems that he is fading into the realm of mere memory, which is probably exactly what Francis and his Nova sort of the New Order Cardinals would like to happen with him, okay? Um, but I want you to think about something. I'd like everybody to think about something. Look at the scenario we have here, okay? Here we have a situation where an archbishop who has spent years and years in distinguished servants, service in the Vatican hierarchy and the diplomatic corps He's been very prominent, I mean, after all, the Apostolic Nuncio, to the United States residing in Washington, D.C., right? Right. That's quite prominent, right? And other prominent positions he's had, he, in the face of a sexual abuse crisis going on in their Novus Ordo clergy, preying upon their own young people, including their own, especially their own seminarians, okay, he reveals that Francis knew that one of the leading cardinals was doing this and still promoted this man and followed his advice in choosing car other, other bishops and make other promotions in the church. And then he disappears. He goes into hiding. And he says that he has to go into hiding because he really believes his life is in danger for having made that revelation. And then 
Nothing. We don't, we don't hear. Why does he believe his life is in danger? I mean, who has been asking that question? Why does Archbishop Vigano believe that his life is in danger? Who is threatening him? Does he feel threatened by Francis? Does he feel threatened by his fellow members of the Novus Ordo hierarchy, cardinals and bishops? Does he feel threatened by the homosexual mafia, as they call it, within the Novus Ordo clergy? And, and if he feels threatened by them, why? Why would he feel that they would threaten him to the point where he has to hide from them for fear that his life will be in danger, that they would actually assassinate him? I mean, isn't that an ongoing story of major proportions? Isn't that an extremely significant idea that we have an archbishop now in hiding before the whole world, he's gone into hiding before the whole world, because he fears his life is in danger from having made a revelation about a Novus Ordo Pontiff. And people just say, oh, well, he's gone somewhere. We don't know where he is, but let's not find out why. I mean, let's face it. If people really thought that he was over-dramatizing the situation and overreacting, that this man is paranoid, I mean, after all, okay, you say that Francis knew about it, okay? Uh, does that mean you have to go hide, you know? Uh, does this mean you, is it, it is though, is it though there's a fatwa out against you to, to kill you? Do you think Francis has taken a contract out on your life? Come on! Carlo Maria Vigano, what are you, what are you saying here? This is absurd. Nobody has claimed that this man is a, is paranoid. No one has suggested that he's paranoid for running away and hiding from Francis or his fellow cardinals, bishops, or, or, or the homosexuals. No one has said the man is paranoid. And so the indication would be, you'd think that people would say, okay, he, he thinks he's hiding from his life for his life because he really believes his life is in danger. Well, if that's the case, why isn't somebody asking him why? Does he really believe that someone is, is, wants to kill him now for what he said, for what he did. And if so, who are these people? You'd think law enforcement would be all over this question. You'd think Interpol would be all over this. This man is in hiding because he's in danger of being assassinated. An archbishop, for crying out loud. And people are sitting there in their living room saying, oh yeah, well, I guess he's hiding out somewhere. Who knows? And, and let's turn the channel and go on to something else as though it doesn't matter. Tom, if this happened in any other organization on the face of the earth, that a major factor, a major leading leading character in any corporation, right, financial corporation, government, right, if Vigano was hiding out from uh, the leaders of a Muslim nation or a communist nation, he was he had to go into hiding. At least we'd read about it. He may be on the on the eighth page of the A section of the New York Times, there'd be something about it there, right? But this uh, Archbishop Vigano has just disappeared. And it's as though everybody just shrugs and says, oh, well, guess he's gone. But why not? Why are they not asking the very serious questions? Does he really have reason to fear? And if so, what's that reason? What is he afraid of? 
who's going to kill him? These are very serious questions, Sarah. I don't hear anybody ask him, do you? No, sir. Anybody. This is, this is actually somewhat frightening. It should be. Somewhat scary to people that this could happen. And nobody's asking. Why? Is there any substance to his fear? Is there any justification for his fear of assassination? And if so, who does he fear will assassinate him? Father, do you think that this uh, could perhaps be the uh, the journalist doing the work of Francis when, you know, after all, all the, these revelations came out and, and Francis in the plane interview said to to the journalist, you know, you're, you're professionals, you know what to do, you handle this. Maybe after you guys take care of this question for some time, then I'll come in and mm -hmm. comment about it. So essentially, like you said, left this to them, trusted them to do their job. Do you think perhaps this is what they're doing. Tom, it may very well be that Francis was giving them a signal, go attack him, like the hounds of the Baskervilles, you know, turning the hounds loose to attack him, tear his reputation to shreds, discredit him. <clears throat> and then ignore him. And then him. bury him. Right. And to bury him in the press is, is about as, burying him about as deep as you can go and make him about as dead as he can get, you know. <clears throat> I think so, yeah, but... But still, what you're saying, uh, what you're asking there, but the, the point you're making is very, very important. That yes, I think that press is doing that exactly right now. Even the modern, even the modernist religious press is doing that right now. And I think it's all to serve Francis. Why? Because Francis is the man who is called upon to finish Vatican II. Right. to finish off the Catholic Church, the traditional Catholic Church, and establish the new church, the new modernist church, once and for all. Francis is meant to bring it all to a conclusion. Okay? It, he must not be stopped, no matter what the cost. Okay, Even if it involves the assassination of an archbishop. Evidently, Archbishop Vigano sees it, that there is a real danger there. Um. But that doesn't really address my, the problem I'm saying. There are a lot of people out there right now who are very much aware of Archbishop Vigano being in hiding. And there are a lot of people out there who are actually supporters of his and speak highly of him. Even among the Novus Ordo bishops, there are bishops who are insisting that there must be an inquiry made about Archbishop Vigano's charges or accusations. This is important. But I don't hear anybody else expressing this amazement that it's left at that. I mean, I know I might be somewhat uh, peculiar in my viewpoints, okay? But there have been any number of times in this whole process where I've seen things a certain way, and I can't understand why others don't seem to, to, to catch that, okay? And that doesn't make me, uh, you know, any smarter or dumber than anybody else. It just means I just don't see why people can't see that connection, you know. Like when we started off trying to make people understand the connection between the homosexual abuse crisis and modernism and the modernists and what they've done and how this standard, this started at Vatican II and during Vatican II already. It's not something just that just happened 40 years later or 50 years later. <clears throat> 
But uh, this, is the, this is something that actually boggles my mind, even more than the other question is. I mean, you know, George Neumeyer and all, there, there are people out there who have spoken very, very boldly in support of Archbishop Vigano, defended him, uh, you know, even passionately and so on. But where is anybody saying, wait a minute, we have an Archbishop of the Church who's in hiding because he revealed something about Francis' knowledge of this crisis, of this evil, and he felt he had to immediately go into hiding for fear that somebody was going to, going to kill him. <laughs> you know? And he's still in hiding because he's afraid somebody's going to assassinate him. Why aren't we investigating this? I mean, why aren't we taking this seriously? It, it, does this not count? <laughs> you know? Is this of no consequence? I don't know of anybody else who's, who's in absolute amazement that, that that could be happening. And nobody's saying, look, let's, let's turn the spotlight for a moment on that fact, that there's an archbishop in hiding for fear of his life because he said something uh, that questioned Francis's integrity in all of this, and he's afraid they're going to kill him. Doesn't this tell you something important, and shouldn't we find out what's going on here? I don't know anybody who's trying to follow that angle of this, though. In my mind, that is really important. Why is it being covered up? And not only covered up in the secular press and the Novus Ordo religious press, but why are even those who, uh, who are supporting uh, Cardinal Vigano or Archbishop Vigano, why are they not rising up and saying, we demand to know why this man feels as though his life is in danger? Maybe, Tom, for all I know, for all I know, uh, they have found that Archbishop Vigano does not want that for fear that if there are further inquiries made into why he's hiding for fear of assassination, that it will lead to discovering him and possibly expose him to the danger of assassination. <clears throat> Maybe Archbishop Vigano himself has said, please don't raise this issue. I don't know. Uh, he, I, he, I'm not a confidant of his. He hasn't told me that. <clears throat> but I'm just shocked that those who do support him, um, including the blogger from Italy who was a, a rather, rather great spokesman, Vali was his name, or is his name, why isn't somebody sounding the alarm saying you've got an archbishop hiding from a death squad, or what he fears is a death squad, and we need to know why and what's going on here that would make a, a, an archbishop afraid for his life for doing nothing more than writing a letter saying that Francis knew that this was going on. And now he's afraid someone's going to kill him. <laughs> I'm sorry, but this is a very, very serious matter. And it, I mean, it really, I think, I think the answer to the question will answer a hundred other questions as, as to what is going on in that new order church they've got that the modernists have started? I think the answer to that question is the, is the answer that more than anything else would really expose the evil of the Novus Ordo. Sure. But for some reason, nobody wants to ask that question, apparently, and, and drive it home and say, we've got to find out why he's afraid for his life. Is it because he's paranoid, or is it because somebody will actually wants to kill him, and he knows it?
you know, this almost sounds like, like something you would hear about uh, happening behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, almost. Exactly. It's, uh, exactly. Bizarre, the whole thing. I, I mean, I, I can say from my own personal standpoint, it, it seems to me that um, nothing would surprise me with this Novus Ordo, this New Order Church. You know, he, he exposes all, all these, these homosexuals and all of this that's going on. And if you think about it, you have the uh, the sins that cry to heaven for vengeance. Right there next to willful murder, you have unnatural vice. The two can, can go hand in hand. If you're having the one sin that cries to heaven for vengeance, what is adding the other one onto it? Yeah. Wouldn't wouldn't be a big surprise. Nothing would surprise me at this point with, exactly. with this Nova exactly, sort of exactly right disaster. But exactly, somebody need somebody who has a voice. Though I mean, our little our little voice here isn't going to compel anyone to do anything. But somebody who has a big enough voice, who's recognized widely enough and heard by enough, really has to start generating a kind of drumbeat for this. <clears throat> Why is this archbishop hiding for his life? Right. Why does he feel he has to? What is going on here? Father, what have you got in front of you there? Well, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> well, I just received this in the mail from uh, LifeSite News, actually. I'm grateful for it. This is a publication of theirs that I didn't know existed. But already this is Volume 4, Issue 9, dated October 2018. And it's called Faithful Insight Special Issue. The Vigano testimony. And uh, we perhaps can get a uh, screenshot of this and maybe a couple of the interior pages. But this is a very, very well done um, account of the major information of uh, attending this whole question of, of Cardinal, of our, I'm sorry, Carlo Maria Vigano, Archbishop Vigano. And um, you know, just about anything you'd need to know up to this time is in here. Uh, it's very, very interesting, and it's an excellent chronicle of the events here. So um, I'm grateful that LifeSight has sent this to me, uh, to what Catholics believe, actually, right. and to me at what Catholics believe, and uh, I intend to not only thank them for it, but I intend to subscribe, frankly, because they, they obviously have some excellent information here. But, uh, yeah, I'd like us to... Uh, uh, perhaps uh, do a screenshot of this for the uh, program so people can take a look at it. Sure. It's got a picture of Archbishop Vigano speaking. And uh, I think it's important. They're, they're trying to keep his, his, uh, his voice, his, his picture, his life, you know, his... They're trying to keep his testimony in front of people's eyes so he doesn't just fade away into oblivion. Right. As no doubt Francis and his gang of nine want to happen, but he would simply fade away. Right? Sure. Well, Father, if we could move on to the email inbox. Got a whole stack here for you. Um, one in particular, a, uh, I thought we had a very nice response to one of your uh, clergy crisis videos that you've recently put mm -hmm. out. So this viewer wrote in and said that the two-part series was brilliant. He says, thank you for conveying the true nature of the current problem of modernism with such clarity. Keep up the great work, please. Very best regards. Oh, and another one, Father, from a viewer who says they just finished viewing the series. They thought it was great. However, they believe that there is a need for a follow-up. 
In particular, they ask that um, you surmise how you said a repeal of Vatican II is not going to happen. So if this repeal of Vatican II is not going to happen, what is going to happen? They ask what is the future for the one true Holy Roman Catholic Church as we, quote, crush this wretched thing, the modernist church. What does the future look like, Father? Well, I think what the traditional Catholics have done all along is just simply renounce Vatican II. I think they find so many anomalies associated with Vatican II that they, they, they can make a fairly good case that this really does not represent a, an ecumenical council of the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, it, it, the way it was called, the way it was presented, what it actually did, how it functioned, and that council was a rogue council. And it, when it was hijacked from uh, day one by the modernists. All one has to do is read Father Ralph Wilkins, uh, The Rhine Flows Into the Tiber. And although Father Wilkins wasn't writing that book, he was a divine word missionary attached to the Vatican uh, Council as a journalist. And even though he writes the book in a very sort of impartial sort of way, reporting as a journalist, and you get the impression that he was okay with what was happening there personally. But you also read, not between the lines, but you read the lines, what he actually says, and you realize this council was hijacked by a cabal of modernists from the very beginning. Nothing comes through so clearly as that. And uh, so traditionalists have a very solid um not only rational basis, but theo theological basis for questioning, at least raising the legitimacy, uh, legitimacy of the Vatican, Second Vatican Council. And, um, but I don't consider the Novus Ordo, uh, by that I mean the modernists, I don't see them renouncing their, their <laughs> Vatican too. I mean, that, that would be like renouncing their, uh, their bar mitzvah, uh, they mean like renouncing their religion almost. Uh, that's Vatican II, and they're not going to do that. No. They're completely invested in this, right down to the homosexual crisis. Um, and they're not going to back away from it. So I think this young priest who wrote the very good letter showing certain insight uh, has not yet really followed through in the conclusions to realize the gravity of the situation, to realize that can't happen. They're not going to do that. Uh, they're too deeply entrenched and too invested. Um, the only solution really is that we individually renounce Vatican II as a modernist uh, experiment at the least, right? A modernist contrivance and uh, simply return to practicing the traditional faith in its entirety and not follow uh, anything to do with modernism, not compromise with anything to do with modernism, period. Um, and that's what I'd recommend that he, the young priest, do. Uh, find a way to be ordained as a traditional Catholic priest, but find a way also to make sure that he doesn't have some of the modernist mud stuck on his shoes from going through the modernist seminaries. And. Uh, and really practice the Catholic faith and profess it as a priest. Um, but, uh, you know, what he, what he said in his letter about renouncing Vatican II, just renouncing Vatican II isn't going to... How does it make all these modernist cardinals and bishops and archbishops go away? How does it change them? It doesn't. And even when people were suggesting at first, 
uh, like Church Militant was suggesting, Francis needs to resign. Francis needs to resign. <laughs> well, fine, Francis needs to resign. I mean, six months ago or eight months ago, uh, Paroline and, and others in the Vatican were suggesting they find someone to replace Francis with because, well, I'm not sure why. I had a theory as to why. But they were already talking about it. Francis was talking about, about resigning anyway at one point. They have men stacked up. They have them 20 deep to take his place. And one is worse than the next. You know, one devil is worse than the next. This could be the case of, of the unclean spirit going out of a man and returning with seven devils worse, worse than himself. Right. You know, they, they've got this locked up. Francis has appointed half of their so-called bishops now. And, uh, but I mean, so many of them, uh, I mean, Theodore McCarrick was, was advanced by John Paul II. John Paul II himself was responsible for so much of this modernist just assault and takeover and, and uh, defilement of the church. Uh, this goes back so long. Um, since Paul VI, since John XXIII, is there a single bishop alive today who was uh, named uh, to be bishop and, and consecrated bishop before John the Twenty Third took over in fifty eight. Is it possible? I don't think any one of them. They're all modernist creations from Paul John the Twenty Third and Paul the Sixth on. So just suggesting that they uh, one day get together and say, "Well, let's just forget about Vatican II." Okay. <laughs> But you've still got a synodal church run by these meetings of, uh, you know, the uh, youth, the young, right? Mm -hmm. uh, crying out for the LBGT agenda, agenda being, being recognized. You've still got that going on. I mean, if you renounce Vatican II and you renounced everything that came from Vatican II, you'd have to renounce the entire Novus Ordo. And they know that. And that's one reason why they are reluctant to agree with them, that modernism is the problem. They're reluctant to face it. Because if they face that fact, that modernism is the problem, they have to begin to face the fact that this entire Novus Ordo is born of modernism. And it has to go. We have to renounce the whole thing. I think that's the big question, Father, that, that everyone gets hung up on, and you'll see all kinds of theories out there on the internet of how how this is how the whole situation is resolved. And I think, um, like you always say, you know, it's Christ's church. It's not our church. It's not our question to answer. We don't have to figure out how to save the church. It's Christ's bride. It's his. It's his church. He's the one that's going to do the saving. But on our part. We can personally, like you said, we can personally renounce Vatican II. We can personally denounce it and embrace traditionalism. And that's all that's required of us at this point. And we can just leave the rest to God, leave him to save his church. As long as God is continuing to provide traditional Catholic priests, validly ordained and truly Catholic priests and their origins in the faith they possess, they profess, and they're not compromising with modernism. I mean, they're not trying to create a like a hybrid or a monster or a chimera religion, um, as long as they're faithful to the entirety of traditional Catholicism, people should 
see in that a sign of divine providence to show them that, yes, there is a way for them to go, and this is the way they should go. Sure. Speaking of Vatican II, Father, we have another email here from a new viewer who says, All I can understand from your program is that the Vatican II Council is heresy. He says, I thought one of the main reasons for the changing of the language of the Mass from Latin to English is to allow the parishioners to hear what was being said during the Mass. In general, people thought that Latin was too European and not American. Yes, I agree that the Mass has lost much of its reverence from the Latin, but we don't travel on horses anymore either. This is a simple example of the general idea. I like the program, though, and it is the most thought-provoking on the Internet. Your response to that, Father? Well, interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Uh, Well, we don't travel on horses anymore. Uh, That may well be true, but uh, that really is not a very good comparison here. Uh, The problem here is they haven't substituted the horse with uh, with a, a working automobile. They've substituted the horse with a log, a rock, with a, a pile of dirt. In other words, they've substituted the, the mass, they've substituted for the mass something that is nothing but a, a, a worship service done by people, um, and it is not the sacrifice of Calvary. The new mass is not really the mass. It was never intended to be, whether it's in English or even if it's in Latin. The new Mass is not the Mass. It is not the sacrifice of Calvary. It was never intended to be. That's the problem. So we might say, okay, that we've, we've made an improvement over the horse as a means of, repu- uh, of, uh, of transportation. Well, if we want to compare means of transportation, horses, donkeys, goats, <laughs> right, pigs, uh, the internal uh, combustion engine, uh, and uh, and so we want to compare those. We can do that and say this is an improvement over that. But comparing the new mass, so-called, with the traditional mass, is not a comparison of these things, because these are not the same thing. It's not just one is a better brand of the same thing, and the other is an inferior brand of the same thing. They are different things, essentially different things. The traditional Mass, as we were all taught in the old days, is the unbloody sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. The new Mass is not that. And anything that said that it was, was taken out of the Mass in order to make the new Mass. That whole idea was systematically purged from the new Mass. So now the new Mass is a Protestant worship service which simply remembers that long, long ago and far, far away, Jesus took bread and wine and blessed it and gave it and said, this is my body which will be offered for you, this is my blood which will be poured out for you, as a memorial service of the Last Supper. Right? The new Mass is that. It's a memorial service of what Jesus did long, long ago and far, far away. That's not the traditional Mass. The traditional Mass is that sacrifice. It doesn't just remember it. It is that sacrifice. It is the sacrifice of Calvary. Such that our Lord is present upon that altar, 
crucified, died, buried, risen, glorified, living, and having undergone that sacrificial death, he brings it onto that altar. And from that altar, at every Mass, our Lord is pleading to heaven, to the Father, for mercy for you and me and our writer there. Every single Mass. Our Lord is doing for us what he did on Calvary. Except for this, he's not bleeding and he's not dying there. But he's offering that one death he underwent in sacrifice from that altar for us. And uh, he's also pleading to us, by the way, from that altar by our faith in him and our confidence that he is there because he promised to be there. He's pleading with us to come to the Father to seek mercy with confidence and to receive him as an act of love for him. When you see the host, when you see the chalice, you see God's love embodied there, right? It's actually made physically present there, as it were, right? in the very person of our Lord, his body and blood, his soul, and his divinity. This is the meaning of the Mass. Now you read the offertory prayers of the new Mass, and you, you know they talk about this wine we have to offer, fruit of the vine and work of human hands. It will become our spiritual drink. No, no relationship to Calvary, no relationship to the forgiveness of sins, no relationship to seeking God's mercy, as you find in the traditional offertory prayers. So, you know, I, I understand uh, that our, our reader and our, our questioner there is trying to understand why, why are we making this, this issue? We're not making the issue, we're just trying to point it out. The issue really exists. In the new mass and the traditional mass, they're not the same, meaning they're not, they're not masses. One is a Protestant communion service, and the other is the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary. That's the true mass. That's the traditional mass. Father, another email here. Um, you mentioned the priest consecrating the, the, uh, the body and the blood, the bread and the wine. This viewer writes in and says, uh, ask you to please explain when and why the Western Church discontinued offering Mass under both, including both species, to the people. She says the Orthodox offer under both, the Eastern Rite does, Vatican II does, and so do Protestants. Mm -hmm. So why did the Western Church discontinue this? Actually, the Protestants under Luther made that a big issue. So actually, the, the Council of Trent actually uh, responded to that challenge of Luther by saying, if someone says that one must receive uh, Holy Communion under, under both species, or the Holy Eucharist under both species to receive our Lord, or doesn't receive our Lord himself, whole and entire, under either species, anathema said he's up, he's not a Catholic even more. Because the Catholic Church believes that our Lord is present there, as I mentioned, crucified, died, buried, risen, and glorified. So that our Lord personally is present in both the hosts and in the chalice, right? And that when you receive either one, you receive him in his entirety. He's not divided between them anymore, okay? They divided his blood from his body in killing him on Calvary. But risen and glorified now, we do not have that problem, as it were, of this, the dead Christ, his body and his blood, we have the consecration of the body and the blood separately to show forth, 
as St. Paul says, the death of the Lord until he come. In 1 Corinthians, St. Paul says that to us. But our Lord does not continually die. We know that, right? He's risen, he's glorified. Um, and so we receive him completely and whole and entire under either species. So that you may have someone who has, uh, let's say, celiac disease or something like that, and has a very, cannot digest gluten, okay? Who can actually receive some drops of the precious blood from the chalice and receive communion that way. We almost see a sign of God's providence in providing that. And this uh, practice of giving Holy Communion under both species was not eradicated from the Latin rite. In fact, uh, even in St. Pius, uh, Pope Pius IX's time, at Masses at the High Altar at St. Peter's, the Papal Altar, Pope Pius IX would attend, when he wasn't offering the Mass, some cardinal would be offering Mass, but the chalice would be brought to him with the fistula, the golden straw, be silver and, and, and uh, plated in gold. And uh, the Pope Pius IX would actually draw some of the precious blood and receive from the precious blood during the masses that he was not himself offering, but he, att he attended there mm. in St. Peter's Basilica. So the idea of receiving under both species, there's nothing really uncatholic about that. As our writer uh, correctly notes, the Eastern Rite Catholic Church does provide that. And the way they provide for that is they, they actually take the, the hosts and they, they're kind of cubes almost, sort of in the shape of small sugar cubes, I guess you could say. And uh, they're, they're rather solid. What they do is they take the spoon, they dip that into the chalice for a moment, and then they place that into the open mouth of the communicant and turn it so that the host with a, some drops of the precious blood fall into the mouth of the recipient. And a, a Catholic, and anyone knows this, anyone who is Catholic could actually go to those Catholic Eastern Rite Masses and attend there, okay, and receive in that way. It's just that the error of Luther was saying that's the only way you can legitimately receive, that Christ is not present under both species, whole and entire, as though somehow Christ is now divided in the Eucharist, which the Church says, no, you cannot believe that he is divided in the Eucharist. And... Um, so, you, if, if the question was originally, when did the church make that, make that change so that the standard procedure of administering Holy Communion was giving the host only, very, very early on. Um, and I don't know the answer exactly when, but it, it would be an interesting study to make. It probably was not uh, done by um, fiat originally by some decree that just emanated out from Rome saying, henceforth, you will only give the host. It seems to be, to the best of my knowledge, a practice that was adopted from the early, early days of the church in the West because of the dangers of sacrilege and profanation that were attendant upon giving the, uh, the precious blood. And uh, they seem to have found the way in uh, the Eastern Catholic Rite to do so in such a way that the Church endorses that and says this is perfectly Catholic way to administer the Holy Eucharist. Right? Hmm. But the Church, as a way of preference and for safety's sake, is very, very cautious and not only limits communion to the host, 
But even then, Tom, you know, spreads of the cloth in Europe, many in some places in the United States too, but also then uses the gold-covered communion plate in administering communion so that every particle of the host is, is caught and that nothing is lost because the church believes that Christ is present in every single fragment of the host. Right? This is just an example of the a special caution or precaution taken by the church in the Latin rite to protect the Holy Eucharist. Hmm. How interesting. And it kind of stands in stark contrast with the Novus Ordo now. <laughs> just a little and bit. And the absolute reckless abandon that they have, handing hosts out to people, yeah. particles of the host falling on the floor, people coming up and announcing the body of Christ, but they're walking in the particles of the host of the people who went before them. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a diabolical contradiction, which nobody seems to care about in the Novus Ordo. Nope. But uh, it's real. It's happening day by day with them. Um, so I think what we're pointing out here, the question, the question of this uh, good listener here is the the serious caution ex uh, uh, exam exhibited by the the Catholics of the Latin Rite to safeguard the Blessed Eucharist against sacrilege, profanation, and uh, and uh, anything that would be an insult to our Lord's sacred presence there. Mm -hmm. Um, that should actually arouse a certain wonderment and admiration <clears throat> in those who, who understand the reverence and the, the adoration that is offered there. <clears throat> uh, just to develop that point a little bit, <clears throat> I, I have uh, graduates who bring their friends, non-Catholic friends, to Mass. Occasionally. Sometimes even boyfriends and girlfriends, sometimes even fiancés. They bring them to the traditional Mass. Maybe they're Baptists, uh, Lutherans, atheists, who knows what, you know. They bring them to traditional Mass, and it's unlike anything they've seen before. It's like, okay, everybody's here. Everybody's kneeling down. Everybody's facing in one direction and absolutely silent, and they're gazing off to some common point far in the distance there, which is all lit up up there. And it's kind of eerie for people who haven't seen this before, you know. They walk into a, a large hall full of hundreds of people, all kneeling there in silence and just kind of intent upon something happening up there, you know, together. They say, this is, how can you call that worship? They say, you know, for them, worship is clapping their hands, stomping their feet, singing songs, reading scripture, shouting hallelujah. <laughs> that is worship for them. They, they can't see any connection between what traditional Catholics do and call worship and what they do call worship. They find it very odd. But if you were to ask them questions, if they would, were willing to respond to you, say, well, let me ask you this, okay? How do you think it was on Calvary? What do you think people were doing there in Calvary? Um, I mean, you mentioned there the singing and the clapping and the maybe dancing and, you know, shouting hallelujahs and all the rest. Well, if you went to Calvary, um, if, you, if you saw Mary there, 
Blessed Virgin Mary there, okay? She was there. What do, what, what do you think she was doing there? And they would say, well, she was probably really quiet, just looking up at the cross at her son and was completely focused on Jesus on the cross, you know? You'd say, yeah, that's, that's true, you know? And was there anybody there with her? If they know anything about the Gospels, oh, yeah, uh, John the Apostle was there with her, and Mary Magdalene was there with Mary. You'd say, well, what were they doing? You know? And they'd say, well, I mean, they probably, with Mary, they were probably doing the same thing. I mean, they were probably totally focused on our Jesus on the cross. And you'd say, well, what about, uh, what about the soldiers? What were they doing? Oh, they're the ones who are making all the noise, you know. <laughs> but what about the high priests of the, of, the, of the Jews? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were shouting out this and that and the other thing. They're, they were making all the noise, and they weren't really focusing uh, on Jesus on the cross so, so much as they were shouting to each other and, you know, carrying on about, you know, we got him this time or whatever. <laughs> and so... You know, you you kind of begin to make the point in their minds that uh, on Calvary, those who loved our Lord and those who were intent on what he was doing, uh, on, on his sacrificial death, even ones who didn't know exactly that he was dying sacrificially for them on the cross, but out of love for him, they were kind of like the people at that Catholic Mass. And uh, maybe John and... Mary Magdalene and the Blessed Mother weren't kneeling there. They might have been, though. But they were very intent in silence on our Lord. They were, their focus was entirely on him there. And all the shouting and carrying on and the soldiers throwing the dice, uh, gambling for our Lord's cloak and all the rest, they were not intent on all that stuff, right? And if you walk into a traditional, traditional Mass, and they'd say, well, you know, these people are acting like the Blessed Mother and St. John the Apostle and Mary Magdalene, like, like they, I would expect them to be on Calvary. And you'd say, you know, that's, that's the point, isn't it? That's exactly right. And that's exactly why Catholics do what they do at the traditional Mass, because that's what it is. That's the whole point there. They realize where they are. They understand what the Mass is. And they realized that, yes, they could do all these other things, uh, reading and dancing and singing and clapping and all the other stuff, but they realized that that's not what the Mass is all about, having a kind of a quasi-religious hootenanny or hoedown. Um, it's going to Calvary. And um, that makes all the difference, son. Only in that context could a non-Catholic begin, even begin to understand what is going through people's minds at a traditional Catholic Mass and why it is truly worship. Mm -hmm. But not just the kind of worship of John Doe, but the worship of John the Apostle, the worship of Mary Magdalene, the worship of our Blessed Mother on Calvary, why it is actually uh, truly a matter of uniting ourselves with our Lord, our Lord's sacrifice on the cross, made present on the altar. Mm -hmm. Father, I think that's such a great point to make, drawing that connection between uh, Calvary, 
in the mass, the sacrifice of the mass, the sacrifice of Calvary, because I think that that shows the the diabolical nature of what the modernists have done when you divorce Calvary from their sacrifice of, of the mass, then mm -hmm. what do you have? You don't have this. You can't even picture that. You can't picture, well, what was the Blessed Mother doing here? What, what was St. John doing? Because you don't have Calvary there. Right. You're left with, with nothing, basically. But, Father, I thought real quick we could um, end with one last email from a viewer who writes in and says, our Father Jenkins and Michael Voris, producer of the Vortex in Communication. I believe Voris remains a Vatican II Catholic, but he and Father Jenkins are both such powerful voices against Francis. It may not take much to convince Voris to join forces with WCB. So, Father Jenkins, are you in contact with Michael Voris? Uh, not directly. Huh? Possibly not even indirectly. I don't know. <laughs> The only contact I've had with Michael Voris, we've been in the same room, at the Bringing America Back to Life conference in Cleveland, Ohio, at the beginning of every March, okay? Mar uh, that is the March, the month of March of every year. Right. And uh, Michael Morris's church militants has a display and a table there, but so does our local church, traditional church, St. Teresa of the Child Jesus there in Parma. Mm -hmm suburb of Cleveland. And uh, I have been engaged in meaningful dialogue by, let's say, a lieutenant of Michael Boris. And uh, I understood from others who knew Michael that he was actually standing behind me at one point, listening to the exchange, but mm. didn't say anything. <laughs> and wasn't there when I turned around, I don't know. But um, that's the closest I've gotten to Michael Boris. Okay. Uh, occasionally, I will tune in to Church Melodin if there's something that looks particularly interesting. But again, I think there is there is a major divide between the two programs. Because when all is, is said and done, I, I don't think that Michael Voris really understands the nature of modernism, and I don't think he really understands that the entire Novus Ordo uh, structure, right, uh, has begotten a false religion called the New Order that must be rejected in its entirety. And we have to return in its entirety to the traditional Catholic faith again. And that there's no divine power in heaven or on earth that would not only prevent us, that would order us not to do that. But there's no, no power that uh, from God that would uh, absolve us of the obligation to do that. That that's exactly what God commands us to do, to reject the Novus Ordo and to be faithful in our traditional Catholic faith. I'd like to think that in the course of time and grace, Michael Voris will come to see that. that uh, now, whether or not he continues to see Francis as a true pope or not, uh, to me, is immaterial. I mean, I, I don't see that as really the, the issue, okay? Um, but I do see uh, the issue being, though, is... No pope, whether it be uh, whoever he might be, has the authority to do what these modernists have done. Create a new religion uh, to replace the traditional Catholic faith and then order everyone to follow their golden calf. And then do all these horrible, horrible immoral things and protect them and uh, and foster them as a means to an end. I mean, even, you know, the, the premise of my last uh, couple spot uh, programs was that the homosexual 
Sexual abuse crisis within the Novus Ordo is not an accident. It's means to an end. And the means to an end is to condemn clericalism, which they mean to con means to condemn the traditional priesthood as the church has always known it. They want to condemn that. They want to replace it with a modernist ministry of some kind where all the laity, where everybody has is a priest, but not that priest, okay? One year in uh, in Connecticut, Archbishop Lefebvre uh, came to ordain priests at the seminary, okay? St. Thomas Aquinas Seminary. And we were in procession with Archbishop Lefebvre and the priests to be ordained. And we processed uh, past the gates of the seminary and standing there was a group of about a dozen women in shorts and halter tops carrying signs, we demand the priesthood, ordain women, right? They might have been standing in a patch of poison ivy for all I know, but they're shouting as we're going by in our procession right outside the gates in Tecora Trail uh, in Ridgefield, Connecticut, okay, that they demand the priesthood. Well, they saw all of us process by with the cross and the candles and the, the vestments, and we saw them packing up and getting in the car and driving away. As if to say, well, that's really not what we had in mind. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, no, we want these big rainbow floppy vestments with butterflies and Snoopy on the front. Of, you know, what kind of priesthood is this? You know, they, Even they recognize there's a world, of, there's a heaven and hell difference between these two things. You know, Francis wants the kind of priesthood they want. That's what he's trying to give, see. and he has to get rid of the traditional priesthood to do it. So, um, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that Michael Voris gets to finally understand that you know, there's no no power in heaven that stands behind this Novus Ordo, that the Novus Ordo stands condemned by the Church over all those centuries before the modernists seized the power. And um, that uh, also that it is God's explicit command through the church for all those centuries that we hold fast to the true traditional faith. And I would hope that eventually he would see that it's way clear to not only see it himself, follow it himself, and profess it himself. Father, thanks for being here tonight. Oh, and I will pray for that intention too. <laughs> I trust good. you will as well. Yes. And God bless you all. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.